If you're able to kneel with me for prayer, will you do so? Lord, we are bowed before you and say that we surrender all. And we acknowledge, um, Lord, that you are the anthem of our heart. You are the anchor for our souls. You are faithful and true. And never do you leave us or forsake us. No matter what is happening around us, you are with us. You have been so, so good to us. You are so, so good. And we just acknowledge that you alone are God, that there is no other besides you. And you are in um, complete control. You are upon your throne, and you want no other idols before you, Lord. You alone are our God. I just thank you for this space that has been created for your um, for your work to be um, happening now, Lord, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We surrender ourselves, Lord, to your work. May our hearts be open and soft and ready to receive the word that you have for us. And again, Lord, I just thank you for the space that has been created. Here, Lord, and in the home of each person who's, um, who's watching this service, that your presence is everywhere with us. That's just the awesomeness of who you are. So I lift up Conrad to you, Lord, as he um, has been meditating and praying and preparing for uh, this morning to deliver this word. I just pray for your strength, Lord. Just pray for your strength to be upon him. I pray for strength, Lord, from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Strengthen his mind, strengthen his voice, strengthen his spirit, Lord. Courage, I pray for courage, Lord Jesus. That as he delivers this word, Lord, that your shield of protection would be around him, around his voice, around his mind, around his body, Lord. Not just for now, but for the week to come. 
I pray, Lord, that he would speak your word with boldness, with integrity, Lord. May he keep his eyes fixed and focused on you as he delivers this word that you have for us. May he simply be a vessel through which your word flows to the rest of us, Lord. We just thank you for the opportunity to be to be gathered this morning, Lord, wherever we are, to be gathered to hear to hear from you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable this morning and all of the days of my life. My strength and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. Again, I want to say thank you to the tech team uh, for their good work this morning and this week, as well as those who are helping us to get our electronic announcements out. We know there were some glitches this week. We're continuing to work on that as well. To the board, the ministers who continue to do the effective work of the church and of the ministry and of the kingdom. My prayer this morning has been that although the sanctuary only has seven or so of us here this morning, as it has for the last five weeks or so, My prayer is that heaven would be here this morning, and my prayer is also that heaven would be in your home, that wherever you're watching or wherever you're listening, that you would experience heaven there. I also greet you in the name of the one who says peace to you this morning, wherever you are and whatever you're experiencing or feeling or fearing. I awoke this morning that I had a keen sense that there is a desire that you have and that I have for truth this morning. For truth in this message and in this time, as well as a need for assurance and comfort. I'm also there with you in that need for truth and that need for comfort. In a world where the headlines this week reminded us that there might not not ever be a vaccine for this virus, that the virus could return with more intensity to this fall and winter, that we don't have evidence yet that getting the virus ensures we cannot get it again, where the economic damage in our country is surpassing that of parts of the Great Depression, where there are new questions about our food supply chain, where some of you learned this week that you are out of work indefinitely, where some of you are feeling the accumulated grief and pain and sadness and disappointment of the losses that you are experiencing, where it is so clear that this is no longer a vacation that we're on, where we even live in some fear of one another. And we could go on and on and on in this season we're living in. For clearly this is a land we have never been in before. And we need truth and we need comfort and we need assurance more than any time before we've lived. In this week's Psalm of the week, Psalm 121, the psalmist found himself or herself in such a position, looking at the hills, and Kate's one song reflected this, looking at the hills around them, Perhaps hills or mountains that they had grown up in and had always been an assuring and a comforting presence for them. They were always there. No matter what happened, the mountains remained. But on this particular day, when he or she awoke, the mountains were not enough anymore. Perhaps on that day, the mountains now looked foreboding and dark and haunting. Perhaps their familiarity was no longer enough for the psalmist. Or perhaps like the mountains of Psalm 46, they were falling that day into the depths of the sea. Whatever the case, the psalmist finds himself or herself asking the question, where does my help come from? Where does this morning my help come from? From the assurance of our government leaders, from the assurance of the Federal Reserve, 
from the assurance of the world's best scientists, from the assurance that I think my job is secure. No, none of these assurances worked on that particular morning for the psalmist. And he and she, or she like you and me this morning after six weeks of, deadline, of headlines like I've just repeated, are newly aware that our help comes from God alone. From the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, even the maker of this deadly virus. God alone, the maker of heaven and earth. And in reminding himself this, of this truth, the psalmist appears to gain new strength and new assurance that his maker will also not let his foot slip. That his maker is not falling asleep on the job. That his maker has not drifted off behind the wheel. In fact, our maker continues to watch over us no matter what the headlines say in these weeks. No matter the truth about this virus's destructiveness. And no matter all of the uncertainty that we are living in day after day after day. The one thing that was always most true the one thing that was even most true six weeks ago before all of this hell broke loose, that truth has always been and that truth remains this morning and always will, that the Lord watches over you. The Lord watches over us. The Lord is our shade at our right hand. The sun will not harm us by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep us from all harm. The Lord will preserve our lives. The Lord will watch over our coming and going both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. That this morning, brothers and sisters, is the truth that we always need. The assurance that we always need and the reality that this has always been the truth we've needed the most of all truths. We just haven't realized how much we've needed that truth so much of the time. The message this morning continues the story of the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. I've been suggesting that there are quite a few similarities between those 40 days and what Jesus wanted to reveal to his disciples and the season we are in right now in this pre-COVID and between the pre-COVID and post-COVID seasons, whatever the latter is going to look like. In the season of isolation and quarantine, in fact, you may be interested in knowing that the word quarantine in the Latin in the 17th century was used to identify 40 days. Those 40 days between Jesus' ascension and resurrection with the disciples living upstairs at times, locked for fear of the Jews, full of doubt as to what was going on in their lives, living as it were a kind of quarantine that we also are experiencing with fear and doubt and uncertainty. Despite history's most powerful miracle that they had experienced in which the death that we know was defeated on the cross and where Satan's reign received notice that it would come to an end, still those disciples who had experienced this lived in fear and doubt and unbelief. The world had been turned upside down for them and they appeared to be struggling to come to grips with the uncertainty of whatever this new normal was going to look like. What those disciples needed more than anything else in those 40 days was to be grounded in the truth and the assurance and comfort of Jesus. Where they were is where we are in this very moment. And just as he was then for them, Jesus remains the only source of truth and our only comfort, as the Westminster Catechism says, our only comfort in life and in death. 
and knowing that this is what we needed, Jesus delivered to the disciples and to us today both truth and comfort. Truth and assurance. Truth and assurance that he is here this morning, that he is in your home, your workplace, your car, your vehicle, wherever you are, to give you what the psalmist also needed, the disciples needed, and you and I need. Truth and comfort. I'm going to read several passages that appear in the Gospels after the resurrection and up to Jesus' ascension. I'm beginning with Matthew 28, verse 16. I'll give you a moment, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to that. Then I will be going to Luke 24, John 20, John 21, and Acts 1. Just a few excerpts from each of these chapters. Post-resurrection scriptures. Matthew 28, 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and then this promise, Surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Luke 24, verse 25. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are. And he's speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then they asked, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Later in Luke 24, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This is a phrase that he constantly repeats in these gospel narratives. Peace be with you. And that word peace has to do with God's, with, with sh is shalom or God's order, God's reign. He is assuring them that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that no matter what they're experiencing, the doubts and fears they have, he's saying peace be with you. Or God's order, God's reign is, is here among you now. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father is sending you, so sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then John 21, verse 15. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. And finally, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke is writing. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God to them. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. In these passages this morning, in all of them, Jesus is doing a lot of what I'm calling resetting for his disciples. Resetting, repositioning, reframing. I have begun asking a lot of questions about what needs to be reset in my own life and in our congregation as we live in this period. It's a time for thinking about those kinds of things. It's a time for praying about those kinds of things. God, what do you want to reset? I see some things differently than I saw them when I was in the middle of my life. This is a time where so many things have been demolished that we have an opportunity to start over again, both as individuals and also as a church. And during the month of May, I am inviting you to spend time with the Lord, specifically asking those kinds of questions. What about my life, Lord? What about my life do you want to reset that I have not been open to you doing so in the past? What in our congregation do you want to reset that I have not been open to in the past? What do you want to reset about my participation in our congregation? I've given you a list of those questions that you can find in our electronic e-news that came out this weekend with a link to a survey that I'm asking you, if you read the instructions, to complete in your time with God, not just sitting down at the table and saying, these are my preferences, these are my best hopes and dreams and wishes, but God, what are you saying to me about my life? That, that what I'm giving you is not a sociological exercise, but rather a devotional exercise, a life with God exercise, a spiritual discipline exercise. This is a time when we have an opportunity, many of us, to spend a little more time with God. And so these questions can guide you in this season. God, what are you saying to me about this time of my life? What do you want to reset? What do you want to reframe? What do you want to restore or reform? 
But what it was that Jesus was resetting for the disciples in these 40 days, because perhaps if we know that, what was it that he was resetting in these 40 days? Because perhaps if we know that, we will also get a glimpse into what he wants to reset in our own lives and in our congregations. What is it that Jesus was resetting in these passages? First, the death and resurrection of Jesus were not a reset of God's story or of history. I want to make that clear. Jesus is not resetting history. The death and resurrection were always part of the story going back to our sin in the Garden of Eden. The story of the Scripture, if there is any story at all, and of course there is, is the story of our salvation, of God's entering Eden when we sinned and saying, I am going to make a way for you to come back to that new heaven and that new earth. That's the salvation story of the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And so Jesus is not resetting a story, he's resetting a perspective. Jesus is resetting the the understanding. Jesus is resetting the awareness of his disciples as to what his death and resurrection really meant because they said, we still don't understand. We still don't get it. We still don't believe. Time and again, they expressed their doubt and their uncertainty about what this death and resurrection of Jesus was was about. Jesus is not resetting history. He's resetting the, the perspective of history that the disciples have. Jesus is telling them that I came with an eternal plan to rescue you. My coming to earth was the bailout package that you needed for your crisis. The relief package that God had always put in place, Jesus culminated in his coming. And so throughout these couple of scriptures that I've read, the gospel writers tell us in several places that what Jesus was up to was helping them to understand how his death and resurrection fulfilled the words of the prophets that the words of the prophets in the Old Testament had always pointed to his coming. That Jesus didn't just show up, but Jesus came because the narrative had already been written by God the Father. Jesus was the fulfillment of what God had begun in Eden to restore us back to himself and to restore us to the life we lost and the light we lost when we walked away from him. We see this most clearly in the Acts 1 passage, and if you have that in front of you, You might want to refer to that. Where the disciples, after spending three years with Jesus, hearing him constantly speak about the kingdom of God, constantly speaking about the kingdom of heaven, still, just before his ascension, they ask him, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Not when are you going to restore God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, but when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, this this nation-state? that we've lost to the Roman Empire. Jesus' response was to reset their perspective. He doesn't even really give them an answer that is of any interest to them. At least it's not related to the question. He simply says to them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has, what? The Father has set. It's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has set. That Greek word set refers to the sense that God is the setter of history. That God is the setter with a capital S of all of history. That God is writing the story of where history is going and has been doing that since the Garden of Eden. That God is is the one writing the eternal story. That God is the writer of the drama and the stage director. The disciples wondered when God was going to restore And that word restore also means to set. 
When was God going to reset the kingdom as they thought it was going to be, or as they thought they would like it to be? And Jesus does not answer that question, but he takes them to a deeper truth. And I want to say to you this morning that there are so many questions you and I have that God is not going to answer for us because he wants to take us to a deeper truth. He wants to reveal a deeper reality about what he is up to in this crisis than simply the questions that you have and that I have about it. He says to them, boys, what you need most is not the details about the times and the seasons, but what you need is the truth that the setter of history has it covered, that the setter of history has things under his sovereign control. That's what you need to know. Do you see what Jesus is doing in this passage? Rather than answering their questions about when life will go back to normal, or what, or what the new normal will look like, or when there will be a vaccine that takes care of this mess, or when will I know if I lose my job or not, or how long will we have to stay socially isolated? When can we get back to work? Jesus doesn't answer those questions because they're not the deepest questions and answers that needed the, to be answered. Jesus tells them what they most need to hear, just like he tells us this morning what we most need to hear. Boys, the Father has set the plans and dates and times, and that is all you need to know. That is the truth that you need to know that brings you the most comfort and the most assurance. The details will not. Jesus has already assured them that his coming to earth and that his death and resurrection were part of this grand plan of salvation to save all of creation, to restore all of creation in the new heaven and the new earth that is yet coming. And so that anything between Eden and Jesus and anything after Jesus' death and resurrection is also going to be part of that grand plan that God already set in place and that is going, as I said, to end up in the new heaven and the new earth. That is the reset of perspective. That is the reset of worldview. That is the reset of how the disciples would see the world that Jesus is doing here. Helping them to see in a new way what God has all along been up to. And God does this as a way of inviting them into that reality. Because if we don't know what God has been up to, we have no way of knowing how to step into that reality. We have no way of knowing how to be part of that reality. And the plan of salvation includes you and me. The plan of salvation is an invitation for you and me to step into God's story, to step into this narrative from Eden to the new heaven and the new earth. And I'm convinced that this is part of the reset that God is doing in this moment among us in this crisis. That over the last three, two to 300 years since the Enlightenment, we in the modern world have begun to assume and to believe that we are in control. That technology and science and education will ultimately save us from everything and will always give us the answers we need. I am not against science, technology, and education, and I'm thankful for them. But they do not have the answers that we most need this morning. They do not give us the answers that matter most for our truth and our comfort this morning. If it is truth and comfort we are after, we are not going to find them primarily at the altar of science or technology or education. They will not be found there. Because it is not our minds that need reassured, it is our hearts and our souls. And in fact, they cannot adequately reassure our minds anyway. 
This COVID-19 crisis that we are in has not taken God by surprise, nor is it somehow an interruption of his eternal plan that I've been talking about and that the scripture lays out. It's an interruption of our plans, but not his. It's interesting to me that this pandemic that has brought the leaders, the economies, nation scientists to their knees has been written into God's eternal story since we sinned in the Garden of Eden. I believe that. God's plan has not been thwarted or stymied or delayed by the coronavirus. In fact, I would suggest that everything God puts into place in history actually accelerates his his plans and his purposes. Brings to fruition more rapidly what he intended all along. On a global scale, we are recognizing all of us, probably in a way that globally we never have before, that we are not in control of what is going on. That the structures we have created can disappear like that. And suddenly it becomes a little clear why the scripture tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If a virus can bring us to our knees, how much more so the coming and reign of Jesus Christ? I wonder if it is possible, I'm just wondering, that just as God scattered the people of Babel and threw them into chaos and confusion because they tried to become God, that it is also possible that he is throwing us into confusion and chaos by bringing or allowing a virus that we cannot predict, control, or manage And that this is being used by God to once again reset our recognition that we indeed are not gods. That he is the creator and we are the created. That he is the potter and we are the clay. That he is immortal and we are mortal. That that, that like with Babel, the possibility exists, folks, that just as that tower was reduced to ground level, it may be that we never get above the first floor again in our lifetime. It may be that humanity is on its knees in a way that it's never been until heaven again comes down. I really want to commend those of you who are allowing your perspective of what God is up to to be reset. Heidi and I are hearing from a number of you who are asking really important questions about your life. One of the temptations when we begin, we begin to look back at our lives and we see the way we've made some decisions and choices that we wish we had made is to say, somehow, as I begin to recognize those things, I'm unworthy of receiving God's grace. And I want to say to you this moment, this, moment that is, this is not the moment to deny God's grace. If God is pointing out to you areas in your life where you have regrets about decisions you've made and choices you've made and the time you've spent, And what you've done with your life, now is not the time to allow Satan to condemn you or accuse you. Because now is the day of opportunity. Now is the time to simply recognize that God embraces you as you are where you are. That you remain one who has his imprint upon you. You were made in his image and that image is upon you still. You were created as child and you are still his child whether you've owned that or not. It is never too late to reset our perspective about who we are and what God is up to. 
and why that matters in the lives that we live. In this moment, two levels of reset are occurring among us. Jesus is resetting our perspective to understand that we are not in control and that he is, but he is also giving us a chance to reset our lives, to redesign our lives and our choices going forward so that we align with what we're now seeing in a new way. God is resetting our perspective and our understanding so that our lives can be reset for his kingdom. That's what he was up to in those 40 days, and that's what he's up to today. I received a text from Ron Wenger after last week's message that I told him this weekend summarized everything I'm saying in this message, that Ron wrote this message, and I appreciate him giving me the freedom to share as the Spirit leads me this morning in what he wrote. Ron was just raising some questions about his life, some reset questions about how he's invested his life. He also, in that same moment, shared the perspective that he has about what God is doing, and he pointed to the church as a Laodicean church that is lukewarm. But he also noted that the church that is going to be received by Christ is one without spot or wrinkle and a pure, spotless bride. He suggested that God is up to preparing us to meet Christ. Do you hear what is happening? What is happening within Ron? That there's a reset of perspective he's allowing God's spirit to do, and there's a reset of life that he is asking about and inviting God to speak into? Ron's not the only one we're hearing that from. There are others as well. Last week's Adult Sunday School Hour, and we'll get started as soon as the message is over this morning, and I invite you to join us on Zoom. But last week's Adult Sunday School Hour contained more genuine confession of sin than I think I've ever heard in this congregation accumulated in 20 years of being here. It just flowed. Something is being loosened among us. As we allow the Holy Spirit to change our perspective, to reset our perspective, and to see that God is in control all along, then we begin to confess that we have not been. We begin to confess that we thought we were gods and we acted like we were gods, but we realize now we were not. And when that sin of confession, when, that, when we begin to confess, confess that we are not in control, it loosens the other sins that are wrapped around it because that is the core sin. The core sin of every sin is that we think we are God in control. And when that sin begins to be confessed, other sins around it begin to be loosened up. Because the first lie, the big lie, loosens the other lies. The confession of the big lie loosens our confession of the other lies. And what is beginning to happen, thank God, is a culture of confession where we acknowledge who we are in light of who God is, that we are seeing in a new way that we've never seen in most of our lifetimes. As another of you reminded me this week that you feel called to fasting and prayer, you reminded me of this verse from Isaiah, which someone else earlier, a young person, young adult, reminded me of too. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, and let's just say that those evil ways are the idea that we are in control, that we've got this, that we are really equivalent to God, because that's the, that's the heart of every evil way. 
Then God says to us, and he says to us this morning, each one of us here and each one listening, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Do you hear what this passage is saying? If we reset our perspective and repent for believing that we were gods in control of our destiny, which is what humility is, recognizing that we're not in control. If we pray and seek God's face and turn from our evil ways, which is just what repentance is, then God says to us this morning, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive your sins, and I will heal your land. This is the good news of repentance. This is the good news of responding to the reset that Jesus is giving us an opportunity to. This headline is much greater than any questions about what's going to happen to this virus, that God will respond to us when we cry out to him. This is the news and the truth and the comfort and the assurance that we've always needed and we need today and perhaps realize just in a new way how much we need it. That if we reset our perspective and reset our lives, God will always embrace us. God has been waiting forever to embrace us. For years, I've had a very warped view of revival and repentance. And I think it goes back to my early days in the revivals of George Brunk and some others that some of you who are older remember. I don't remember those revivals fondly. So when people talk about revival, it's not been something I look forward to. My view of revival and repentance is associated with tremendous guilt as I stood in that dark, hot tent night after night in Big Valley, and everyone around me sang, just as I am, over and over and over again until somebody moved. Heart pounding, palm sweating, and perhaps more than not, going forward night after night after night, trying to find peace at that altar with someone praying over me again, repentance of sin. But the atmosphere of that revival, the atmosphere of that kind of repentance always felt dark, condemning, guilt-ridden, and like the last place I would ever encourage a sinner to go. In other words, I think we have sometimes created this idea that repentance and revival are, are heavy things, are, are dark things, are ridden with guilt and condemnation. Spaces where we better own up to our sins or else, or else. But this is not the image of revival and repentance that is in this passage in Isaiah that I just quoted. Revival and repentance are an invitation to life. Revival and repentance are an invitation to light. Revival and repentance are an invitation to a table that God has spread for us. Revival and, and, and repentance are an invitation to the greatest hope we could ever have. It's, a, it's an invitation back to the Garden of Eden. It's an invitation to the new heaven and the new earth that will surpass even Eden. Revival and repentance is simply to respond to this message of a reset and to respond to the freedom and the life and light and hope and comfort and acceptance that Jesus offers you this morning. Revival and repentance are not to be feared unless we prefer death to life and unless we prefer darkness to light and condemnation to forgiveness because revival and repentance will move us further from condemnation, further from darkness, further from death than anything else in the world ever could. Because revival and repentance are the reset 
that allows us to enter the kingdom of the one who is writing the most beautiful and lovely and glorious story that has ever been written. And it's a story that includes you and me in this moment if we reset our lives. Some of my best memories spiritually are those in which people I've loved, God has brought a repair to that relationship over a conflict. Those are moments of healing and life. And that's all repentance and revival are at the highest level. It's simply the repair of our relationship with our maker, with our creator, with the one who loves us more than anyone else loves us, who doesn't condemn us as we come to him. It's we who condemn ourselves. He is not condemning us in this reset. That hymn, Just As I Am, used to cause my heart to beat in fear and condemnation and to physically shake. It now, when I listen to it, and especially when I listen to Alan Jackson, it now causes my heart to warm with a comfort that I can come to him this morning and you can come to him this morning without one plea. But just because his blood was shed for you. And that he endlessly bids us and you come to him just as we are. Jesus comes to you this morning in the midst of this crisis and he says to you, just come to me as you are. Not as you were, not as you wish you had been, but just as you are this morning. I receive you as you are. Because as you are means that you still have my image upon you. As you are means that you still have my imprint upon you. I am the maker of heaven and earth. And though you haven't mentioned me for a long time, you are still my child. And though you may never have believed it, you are still my child. And I wait for you to come just as you are without one plea. And to the church of Laodicea, he spoke and he does again this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. To the church that was the most lukewarm, he offers this promise that he, that he promises to no other church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come, eat, come in and eat with him or with her and he or she with me. Being reset, folks, in this time of COVID-19 means that we will never be isolated again, never quarantined again, never alone again. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that there is truth and there is assurance and comfort with capital T's, A's, and C's that surpass anything that is being offered to us right now anywhere else other than you. You are our source of truth. You are the truth and the life and, and the way. You are our bread of life. You are everything that we need to sustain us to satisfy us. And we just say this morning together, there is no other who can satisfy us. There is no other who is our help. There is no other who is our refuge. When we have thought there was, when we have thought we were it, 
When we have thought we were our shelter and our hope and our refuge, when we have thought we were enough for ourselves, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us our debts. May your will be done and your kingdom come on this earth, in this time, as it has already in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. run to the father came to mind and I came in early this morning to print that song out and I I couldn't I couldn't get it to print and when Megan got here I said well I can't get it to print I don't know if that is the Lord's way of saying don't sing this song this morning or if it is Satan trying to derail still is not one. So we're going we're gonna to sing this song. We're going to praise him that he is faithful. And again, I encourage you to go listen to that song later today.
I continue to be amazed at how God has been leading our congregation and preparing us for this season, but also helping us in the midst of it to, to know how to respond. He continues to lead us. 
Um, in January, we had several prayer times together after the service, and people were gathering around. One was an anointing service for myself. And I just had the sense in those couple of times, and I've heard some of you talk about those moments, there was just incredible freedom as people prayed for one another. And it has a sense that the Holy Spirit was flowing in a new way. And in that moment, in those moments, I began to, to wonder about a prayer time, a con- time of committed prayer as a congregation. Um, and that has been held off for a number of re- reasons and is now coming to fulfillment in May. And what a time for that to come. As we're having this discernment about how do we reset, these questions of resetting, God has given us and you together a month to pray together. And Josh and Janelle Gish, as our ministers of discipleship, are going to be leading us through that month. Um, We'll have a variety of different people bringing the message, leading the adult Sunday school hour. And this morning, I'm delighted to have Josh and Luke here. Luke is uh, the oldest child, oldest son of Josh and Janelle, and they're going to talk about that month together. Thank you, Josh and Luke. Um, Luke, can you, can you tell me what, you're, you're on the prayer team, right? Okay. And, um, on, the, so you, you probably know a lot about prayer being on the prayer team. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Why, why, why would you say that we pray? To talk to God. And, and why is that important? Because can help people by praying and make people feel good. In in the children, when you're downstairs, Bethany talks about four different types of prayer. Do you remember what any of those are? I'm sorry, thankful, I love you, and I'm pleased. Yeah. So, um, so you said, I'm sorry prayers, and I'm thankful prayers, and please prayers, and I love you prayers. So in the month of May, we're going to be talking a lot about prayer, and we're going to talk about why we do it, and, and some will answer, may, or at least raise some questions that, that are difficult, and, um, and, and maybe see if we can come to an answer together about them so we can understand prayer better. Do you have any, can you think of any prayers that you prayed that, that God answered for you? When your hands got healed. Okay. You prayed for my hands when they were hurt and, and they got better. All right. Um, so, uh, so we're looking forward to the month of prayer in May. And, um, and uh, there is a group on Facebook, so make sure that you join that. Um, there'll be a, uh, a reminder every day that will come out with a different different group of people in the church to to pray for the mission of the church. Um, And uh, we're really excited about it.